many political scandals in motion resemble Rupert Goldberg machines. A series of unforeseeable, convoluted, and elaborate events escalating to a climax of an uncontrollable and destructive result. However, the dismissal, while has its fair share of random and inquisitential events, was more tactical and arranged, and that separates it from this analogy. I think the dismissal resembles more of a game of chess than a Rupert Goldberg machine. It was a freeway game in which every player thought they were in control of the board through their own masterful tactic. This is part of what made the dismissal so disastrous. Each player was technically following the rules. It was just their own conflicting interpretations of the rules, in which everyone presumed the others were using the same rulebook as they were. Different players prioritised certain sections and conventions of the constitution over others. This, to this day, highlights the Australian constitution's biggest problem, which is the amount that it relies upon unwritten Crown and Westminster conventions for the Australian government to operate. And I say to this day, because no more clarification or explicit changes were made to the Constitution since the 1975 Australian Constitutional Crisis to prevent it happening again. This miscommunication reached its boiling point in how the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition believed the supply crisis should be resolved. A quick recap from last episode. The Leader of the Opposition, Malcolm Fraser, has in retaliation to the government's scandals and economic management, used his majority in the Upper House, the Senate, to block supply fears. Both men, mirrored in their proudness and confidence, had an opposite view of the constitutional. The Prime Minister, Edward Gough Whitlam, believed he could remain in office if he maintained the confidence of the lower house, even if supply ran out. Fraser's view is that if the government could not obtain supply, the Prime Minister must call an election or resign. Both views were, and still are today, contestable. However, Whitlam had motivation to be confident in his. A majority of the public was against the blocking of supply. They felt that Fraser was being intentionally difficult and was acting in his own interest, unconcerned for effective government. However, out of all three players, Gough Whitlam, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, the leader of the opposition, and John Kerr, the Governor-General, only one had the final say as to whether the incumbent government would survive the supply crisis. That responsibility rested on John Kerr and his reserved powers. Kerr adopted Fraser's view that supply must be obtained, and that when it runs out, an election had to be held, or the Prime Minister had to resign. On today's episode of Dismissed, we'll be exploring the life and personality of the dismissal's most controversial figure, Sir John Kerr. We'll be asking the questions that he asked himself during the supply crisis. Questions of power, impropriety, law, and even deception. Welcome to Dismissed, the podcast where we explore Australia's greatest constitutional crisis. This is episode two falling dynamos on a chessboard. Unsurprisingly, Kerr is seen as the villain in the Labour narrative, a traitor to the party who, through his own misguided ambition, blew up one of Australia's most progressive and legendary governments. Unfortunately for Kerr, though, something odd happened in Australia's usually black-and-white partisan politics. Kerr's vilification in the Labour Party didn't entirely translate to him being a hero in the Liberal perspective. Nowadays, only dry Liberals such as Tony Abbott tend to defend Kerr's actions, while the more centrist Liberals, such as Turnbull, outright attack him. In the aftermath of the election following the dismissal, Kerr soon retired, only three years out of the five years of the Governor-General's term. Kerr's wife, Anna Kerr, described his situation after the dismissal as a, quote, new, irrational scene, swarming with instant enemies, end quote. He temporarily moved from Australia to Britain, in what some described as a voluntary exile. Despite his gloomy political death, Kerr had an optimistic past. Born in 1914, John Kerr was raised in a working-class family, where his grandfather worked as a stevedore and his father as a boilermaker. 
His father was strongly caught up in the union movement, regularly protesting for his workers' rights. He participated in the 1917 general strike. Kerr's father even knew the then leader of the Labour Party, H.V. Evatt, whom Kerr would go on to idolise as his hero. Kerr's family history seeded his eventual membership in the primarily trade union-based political party, the Labour Party. However, Kerr wasn't unfriendly to the other side of politics either. Numerous Liberal members and even ministers saw Kerr as a potential future New South Wales Premier, and some even went as far as to vision him as a successor to Menzies. Kerr differentiated from his family history by pursuing a profession rather than a blue-collar job. He was described as having the brains for politics, but lacking the bravado and thick skin necessary to sustain the brutality of it. Kerr, with a great passion for wanting to influence the law, but not seen as a viable politician, decided to become a lawyer, and in the 1960s, Kerr became one of Sydney's leading industrial lawyers. He would later go on to become the 13th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in New South Wales. Kerr has been described as a man who likes to be on the winning side. He was naturally ambitious, an ample opportunist, and held a lifelong dream of one day eventually entering politics. Kerr's successor as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in New South Wales, Lawrence Street, said of Kerr that, quote, He was a political figure. He knew politics. He was a vain man. I think he wanted to go down history as a man who made decisive action. End quote. Although it is credulous to think of Kerr as some sort of Macbeth figure, a man chasing glory for its own sake. He is often depicted as meek, greedy, and self-serving. But history is never as simple as dividing people up as good or bad. Kerr's intentions were authentic to serving what he saw as Australia's best interests. He even acknowledged at times to his friend and controversial advisor, Garfield Barwick, that he knew his actions would have seismic repercussions on the Australian people, and that he was possibly making an infamous Australian history. In fact, Kerr even offered to resign immediately after the 1975 election, but, on the contrary, Fraser insisted that he stay on. I'm not trying to justify Kerr's methods, that'd be unprofessional and biased of me but I am trying to illustrate Kerr's motivations and rationale for dismissing, given what he was, a public servant. There were four main factors that led Kerr to dismiss Whitlam when and how he did. The first is Kerr's staunch belief and fascination of the reserve powers. The second is how Kerr envisioned the role of Governor-General differently to his predecessors. The third is the rocky relationship between Whitlam and Kerr. And the fourth, and by no means least, is Kerr's conversations with High Court judges Garfield Barwick and Anthony Mason. Each factor will be reviewed in turn, starting with Kerr and the reserve powers. Firstly, for Kerr to even consider dismissal of the government as an option, he needed to believe in the reserve powers as a viable solution to the supply crisis. The Australian Constitution provides the Governor-General with a number of express powers, such as the command of defence forces and the power to appoint judges to High Court. These powers are codified and in practice are only enacted by the Convention that the Governor-General exercises them in accordance with a ministerial advice. However, presumably in cases of where the government is misbehaving or is dangerously inept, there are powers that the Governor-General can exercise without ministerial advice, or even contrary to it. These powers are known as the reserve powers. The reserve powers are not codified in the constitution. 
unlike express powers and are completely substantiated on unwritten conventions. And as I'm sure you can probably imagine, this creates a lot of ambiguity around what the Australian Constitution actually defines as a reserve power. And thereby extension, there is a debate around how the reserve power should be used. Some reserve powers are more widely accepted than others, and some constitutional lawyers even dispute the validity of the reserve powers at all. For Curvo, he had always believed in reserve powers, and in his early days in the post of Governor General, his fascination only grew. Even meeting with the High Court judges to discuss their constitutional validity. Kerr's own personal role models helped shape and buttress his views on the reserve powers. Kerr found a hero in both the prolific Doc Evatt and a friend in the High Court, Arthur Garlick, both firm believers in the reserve powers. However, what makes Kerr's use of reserve powers so controversial is that there are conflicting conventions that trump his use. Kerr used the power to dismiss a Prime Minister in circumstances where the government could not obtain supply. Those opposed to this power argue that it has never been a requirement for the government to obtain the confidence of both houses, and that logically, if Kerr's view would be accepted, it would automatically call into question the legitimacy of any government without a Senate majority, as these governments could have blocked supply. Importantly, this has actually been the case for the vast majority of Australian governments, as they have often commanded the House of Representatives, but lacked the Senate. Kerr also envisioned the role of Governor-General differently to his predecessors, aspiring to be more independent from the government and more active in the Australian political scene. Whitlam was well aware of Kerr's history with both political parties. That actually attracted Kerr to Whitlam for the post of GG. He wanted a more political bipartisan figure compared to other Governor-Generals. Although Kerr wasn't Whitlam's first choice for the post of Governor-General. Whitlam initially wanted businessman Ken Meyer to be GG, but he turned it down. His second choice was John Kerr. Kerr was reluctant to drop his current Chief Justiceship of the New South Wales Supreme Court, since the Governor-General's term was shorter. He would only take the post under two conditions, first being a pension to be available for the post, and the second is for the Governor-General to have an increased ceremonial role. Kerr specifically wanted a greater role representing Australia internationally, he also wanted a double term, 10 years for the role of Governor-General, which is ironic considering he only served three out of the usual five. From these requests, we can definitely see that Kerr wanted the role of GG to be held in high regard, with the request of increased importance and privileges. At the time, both Liberal and Labour members were shocked by the announcement of Kerr's appointment, including Whitlam's own wife, Margaret Whitlam. Some Liberals even saw it as an own goal. On his induction day for the Governor-General, Kerr told his lifelong friend and High Court judge that, quote, he thought there would be opportunities to contribute to policy, end quote. This is an odd statement, considering that no Governor-General has ever exercised any kind of influence like that before. It is, though, consistent with Kerr's vision of a more active Governor-General on the political scene. Often, the role of Governor-General has been a swan song for those who have already made a significant impact on Australian law and or culture. For example, Isaac Isaacs, Australia's ninth Governor-General, was previously a politician who served as a Attorney-General of Australia, as well as the Chief Justice of all of Australia and was a Justice of the High Court before being appointed the post of Governor-General. Paul Hanslark, Kerr's predecessor, had previously been a Liberal politician who served as the Minister of External Affairs, but also been Australia's first representative to the United Nations. Kerr did not have the extensive line of positions as previous Governor-Generals. However, as evident from the previous quotes discussed, Kerr at this point of his life was still looking for a vehicle to make his mark on the Australian history. 
Both factors occur in Vizarin a more predominant governor-general and a more active and autonomous one, combined with his belief in the reserve powers, led him to be more inclined and more comfortable with such an autonomous decision as to sack the government. Another factor that led Kurt to dismiss the government is his relationship with Whitlam. This led Kurt to develop his strategy of dismissal by ambush one of the most controversial decisions that has been criticised by both his friends and foes. Kerr wrote in his memoirs, reflecting on his relationship with Whitlam before supply was blocked, that, quote, From that time forward, my opinion that he was beyond the reach of any argument of mine, or even discussion. Everything he said to me publicly or privately, thereafter, strengthened my view. End quote. Effectively, Kerr felt that Whitlam was so tenacious on his high horse that no advice or professional opinion could reach him. Whitlam was a confident man, and intimidating both in his physicality and personality, particularly around those he did not respect. This was effectively most of his colleagues. Whitlam was brilliant, and similar to many brilliant men, he often failed to stop his brilliance from alienating others. He always had to be right, and was known for firing temper tantrums when things didn't go his way. You could see how his personality traits could intimidate and alienate somebody who was being described as not having a thick skin for politics. Whitlam held Kerr in contempt, and Kerr held Kerr in good regards, you can see how this clash summarises the relationship. Tensions in the government didn't help the relationship either. In the previous episode of Dismissed, I briefly discussed how the loans affair affected Kerr's trust and attitude towards the government. I said that Kerr felt embarrassed signing off on the executive order that condoned the loans that would go on to become scandalous. Kerr wrote in his memoirs that, quote, learnt his lesson from the loans affair, end quote. From this quote, we can understand that Kerr felt he was actually making a mistake in following the judgement of the Whitlam government, and therefore felt he needed to distance himself for it. One interaction that summarises the Kerr-Whitlam relation problem in a nutshell is a conversation between Whitlam, Kerr, and the Malaysian Prime Minister. The Malaysian Prime Minister had visited Australia for the summit after a long day of tours, and he was having a drink with Whitlam and Kerr. The Malaysian Prime Minister was fascinated by the supply crisis and was asking what will happen in the event that supply runs out and the opposition refuses to fold. He expanded by asking, can the Governor-General intervene? Whitlam replied by reassuring that the Governor-General will only act under the advice given to him by the Prime Minister himself. From Kerr's point of view, this was factually wrong. This exchange shows Whitlam's Achilles heel in his relationship with Kerr. Whitlam's assumption that the Governor-General will only act his powers in congruence with the advice from the Prime Minister. Whitlam didn't see a need to persuade Kerr of his actions, and keep up a relation, because he could never perceive Kerr as going rogue. Which, of course, he would. Now, finally, I'm going to explore the discussions Kerr had with two High Court judges. Kerr met with two High Court judges behind Whitlam's back to discuss if he should intervene in the supply crisis, and if the reserve powers should be used. Now, Kerr did initially seek Whitlam's approval to do this. However, Whitlam explicitly advised against it. There was a considerable flaw in Kerr's request, as it would have breached the separation of powers between the executive and the judicial branches of government. There was a considerable flaw in Kerr's request, as it would have breached the separation of powers between the executive and judicial branches of government. In the case that the supply deadlock was to be resolved in the High Court, High Court Judge Barwick's impropriety would be jeopardised, as his perspective would have been influenced by discussions with the Governor-General, a member of the executive. And Whitlam gave this very reason to Kerr. Whitlam said, Quote, when he handed me this letter dismissing my government, Kerr did not tell me that he had a letter from Barwick. I explicitly tendered him advice, based on precedent and pure practice, that he should not consult with the Chief Justice on matters that might ultimately end up before the High Court. End quote. Barwick's own political history also made him a questionable advisor. 
He was previously a senior cabinet minister to Australia's most successful Liberal government under Robert Menzies, only 17 years ago. It would seem politically biased that a previous senior member of one of Australia's most traditionalist governments would be giving advice on whether one of Australia's most regressive governments should be dismissed. Barwick's advice to Kerr was written in a letter that said the reserve powers were legitimate and could be used to resolve the supply crisis by dismissing the Prime Minister. It also reaffirmed the Liberal leader of the opposition view, Malcolm Fraser, that in the case that supply runs out, the Prime Minister must resign or call an early election. What the debate surrounding Kerr's use of reserve powers and his methods of choice all boils down to is an age-old question that is present in every hierarchy of a government, society and even social groups. That is a question of power. Who commands power? Who decides who commands it? How much power should one wield? How do we supervise power so it doesn't corrupt, but simultaneously in the process we don't negate the effect of that power? If we implement someone to supervise a power, who in turn supervises that power? Who watches the watchman? I mentioned in the first episode that dismissal has been named as the beginning of political polarisation in Australia. I think this can be seen in the question of power. If we apply social psychologist Jonathan Haidt's five moral foundation theory, this can be illuminated. Haidt theorises that there are five moral foundations and that each applies to individuals differently, depending on their political leanings. For example, if you value care and fairness, you are more likely to lean towards the political left. However, if you value authority, and purity, you are more likely to lean towards the political right. Now, if you value authority and purity, you're probably more prone to viewing Kerr's use of the reserve powers as legitimate and recognise his hierarchical position above Whitlam, as well as valuing the purity of the constitutional rule of running out of supply. However, if you value care and fairness, you're probably more prone to sympathise with Whitlam and his progressive agenda. This concludes Dismissed Episode 2, Falling Dynamos on a Chessboard. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, creator, and writer of the podcast, Henry Tilly Swift. My script advisor is Isaac Tilly Swift. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as I've enjoyed writing it. I highly encourage and invite everyone who may have sparked a historical inaccuracy to email me at my email, henryts at ionet.net.au, and I'll correct myself in the next episode's show notes. In the next episode, now that we understand the theory behind why Kurt dismissed, we'll be looking at how we dismissed in practice looking at the reactions from Whitlam, Fraser and Kerr. Until then.